When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Drinking your own urine was designed for people to talk about survival training around the water cooler. I have heard this. Maybe you can do a Mythbuster thing here. The number one killer in outdoor situations is hypothermia. Carbon monoxide is a killer, so you need to not use fossil fuels in an enclosed surface. I had a student come in last year that wanted to use his heater in a tent and i'm like you can't i don't care i mean (laughs) i'm not interested in this dude dying in my class i've got to have equipment that works out there not in the lab hey everybody and welcome to the survival show podcast with me i'm craig david and producer ben somewhere in the background where it's our job to take you step by step through the mindset skills tactics and gear that you need to survive almost any crisis, emergency, or disaster. And we want to show you how to use the lessons you learned today to thrive in your life tomorrow. Boys, how are you guys doing today? Oh, man, I'm doing great. I just have one question. Where in the world was producer Ben at the gym this morning? I did not see him. Uh, (laughs) Sleeping? (laughs) If you guys don't know this, uh, producer Ben's actually my son. And so we go to the same gym and it sounds like you don't go to the same gym. Sounds like <laughs> we didn't go to the bed. this morning. <laughs> Usually he's the one saying, Hey, where are you? <laughs> so, yeah. Anyway, Craig, I'm glad you asked because I, I worked some hit into my workout today. They've got a, a big bag there, and I was doing some, some uh, work there. And yeah, everybody thinks you're crazy when you start hitting that bag. But it's, you know, it was there, so I did. <laughs> How are you doing? How was your workout today? <laughs> It was actually good. Uh, you think they think you're crazy. They really think I'm crazy. I've got one of those grappling dummies, dummies, and I throw that thing around and beat it in the ground. <laughs> oh, man. Well, that's great. So as we get going here, guys, we want to give a shout out to you guys who have been encouraging us. That That is really, really encouraging to hear from you guys, hear your comments, hear your suggestions for the show that we are incorporating all the time. And I especially want to thank you guys for your encouragement on the two new episodes per week that we have going up. Oh, man, I have got so many good comments and feedback. I'm sure you have, too. It's been it's been good. It's been real good. Really appreciate it. Hey, I'll just give a shout out to Ben on that. That was Ben's idea. Look at producer Ben over there. That was a great idea. And yeah, so real quick, Craig's new episode, newer episode uh, now is Manly Musings. And you cover just about everything. You're covering some really great stuff that goes along with the podcast we're doing right now and and you've got a heart for leadership and training men and all that sort of stuff mine is called uh, the gear cave yeah so it's all about gear and we're we're deconstructing gear and building some cool kits and all that sounds good let's get going man let's do this tell them what this is all about all right so our mission is to help you guys progressively increase your survival iq so you leave out of here better prepared at the end of the show than you were at the beginning. So today, here's what we're going to do. We're going to deconstruct a real-life story in our Break It Down segment, and we're going to follow that up with a thumbs-up and thumbs-down where Craig and I are going to give you our opinion on a common or not-so-common mindset, skill, tactic, or gear 
And you don't want to miss this because Craig asked me to do one that he didn't know was going to come up. And this one's going to blow your mind and it may make Craig blush. So you want to hang on? Hang Whatever. On that. that is impossible. <laughs> that is impossible. You definitely don't want to miss that. Hear David's evil laugh. And so before we're all done, Ben's going to dip into the mailbag. Thank you guys for the questions. We've been getting some great, fantastic questions. So coming up next, here's what we're going to talk about. We're going to talk about, I'm going to call this like the next stage of the survival mindset. But this is going to get this is going to get real. Specifically, we're going to go into some great detail on what is commonly referred to as the law of threes. Craig, as we get into it, why don't you go ahead and summarize the law of threes and give us an overview for the what's going to happen in the show today. Cool. Happy to. So the uh... So the Law of Threes was a development by the United States military to help people understand in survival situations what their what their priorities are. And so uh, not everybody in the military gets any survival or uh, SEER training, but those that do, they are the United States military is fantastic at teaching people how to do very difficult things under stress. And so we're borrowing heavily from that concept of the law of threes taught there. And it goes like this. You have three seconds to uh, make very difficult decisions due to fight, flight, or freeze. You have three minutes for your own personal safety before something bad happens to you. You only have three hours to maintain your core body temperature. You have three days to find water. You have three weeks to find food. And you have three months to develop human assistance or work with others. So we've expanded that, obviously, with the three seconds and the three minutes is something that I typically add. And even to a degree, the human assistance of three months. But that's the way it is important to understand your order of priorities. So what we're going to do today is we're going to break each one of these down. Now, a lot of you I know, because I've been getting the feedback, you're listening to us as you drive to and from work. So don't forget that the show notes, everything that I just said in order is going to be on the show notes over at patreon.com forward slash the survival show. So go there to get those. And again, keep building that survival binder with those show notes, because that's going to be real important to be able to do that. That's really great, Craig. And I just want to let you guys know that each one of these topics that we break down today, we're going to get into those into some really great detail in future podcasts. And so why don't you give us, why don't, you, why don't we get into this, Craig, right now, and let's start with the three seconds, and then you can break it down and take us into the idea of personal safety. How's that sound? Yeah, that's good. And, and this is really important, you all, because in, in, as far as three seconds, basically what this is helping us remember or recognize, if we don't remember, is to know that we need to be able to make very difficult decisions under stress. And so the idea of fight, flight, or freeze was coined in 1927 by a researcher. And it's basically how we as a species, humans that is, naturally handle stressful or traumatic situations. We're either going to fight, we're going to get away, flight, or we're going to freeze and not do anything. So as far as ways to understand this, uh, I like to think of uh, a dog or a cat that gets in a fight in your in your yard, in your neighborhood, or wherever you might live, uh, you'll know that they, they do everything to avoid it when they can, and then all of a sudden they just turn it on. That's fight. Uh, that means, hey, they recognize something bad is getting ready to happen, and I've got to fight. We, we've got to handle this, and we've got to handle it now. And when they do, they're going to fight 
uh, as hard and as fast as they possibly can. Flight, uh, I often think of because I'm a country boy. Uh, I think of wild turkeys and and other wild critters and stuff of that nature that wild turkeys in particular, as soon as a wild turkey senses any sort of danger, they just turn around and leave. They don't wait around to try to figure it out. Like a squirrel might be inquisitive and go figure it out, but a, but a turkey runs and gets away. You know people like this as well. Some people will, in situations, they see any sort of danger and they immediately leave. And, and we're like that too at, at times. So freeze, uh, and again, in the natural world, is like a rabbit. Like if you're hunting rabbits, one of the things you'll almost always notice is that uh, rabbits will immediately, when they sense or see danger, they'll just immediately stop and freeze. And, and a lot of humans do this. Uh, it's somewhat natural. Uh, basically what it is, is it's built into our genetics to basically freeze because movement attracts attention from the eye. So it's, it's a very natural response to freeze and not move because something with good eyesight is going to be able to recognize that. And through, and I've been training people for over 20 years now in martial arts. And, and that's, these are all things that we can overcome with training, but we've got to understand at the very beginning that these are there and understand them. Uh, one of the things that's towed in all physical um, training methodologies, whether you're playing sports and basketball and or martial arts or whatever it might be, is that muscle memory is there to help you. Well, your muscles don't actually have memory. Uh, that's, that's a real, it, it helps people to understand what they need to do, which is do repetitive motions like shooting a, uh, a basketball to get better at shooting free throws. But there actually is no brain material, thinking material in your muscles. So there is no such thing as muscle memory when it comes down to it. But what you do have is neural pathways. And basically that's where parts of your brain need to get connected to get from one stressful situation to a, a better resolution. And once you build those neural pathways under stress, then they're, they're there, which means you can use them over and over and over again. And so if you do things that stress you and build neural pathways, you can utilize them in other means of stress. And I say this all the time, but like lifting weights, like yesterday, and I, I know we keep going as, man, well, maybe we need to back off on this weightlifting stuff, but, but it's just, I like to share things that you don't have to necessarily go out and sleep in 10 degree weather on the ground. Uh, I'm, that is good training for survival. It's fantastic. I do it all the time. I did it last week, but, but you can also. Um, go to the gym and lift a big heavy deadlift. That's what I did yesterday. I did excessively heavy weight yesterday, uh, not to the point of hurting myself, but really heavy weight. And that's incredibly stressful uh, on the body, on my mind. It's hard to do, but I did it. And so now I have built neuro pathways to help me deal with that stress. And now I can use a lot, utilize those same neural pathways when I see stress of somebody trying to attack me or uh, my car's gone off the side of the road or any number of things. So those, those are all ways that we need to get into to basically start to understand how to overcome this idea of fight, flight, or freeze. Yeah. So I have a question here, Craig. So what you're saying is these are, it really depends on your makeup, your disposition, your everything. These are just three natural uh, expressions of what we do when we're faced with an immediate crisis. Is that what you're yeah, exactly. And I mean, it, and it's okay. Uh, it's it, the, the thing is we need to recognize that they are there. And for example, I've had students 
uh, in training because we I put people through very stressful situations in, in advanced survival training as well as I did it for years in martial arts. And it's my job as their instructor to see how they respond and then help them through that. It's a common thing to see in a lot of survival schools, and I saw another school do this today, and it's, it's, and it's tragic. It's really tragic that they utilize the survival school to be like a a, uh, almost like the military does for entry into some sort of special forces school or something. It's not survival should not be a selection process into, in, into buds or special forces. It's, you know, special forces and buds is for that. Right. Right. But if an instructor is doing nothing but putting you under stress and then not watching and teaching you how to handle that stress, then they're not much of an instructor. Right. So that's what we want to do is just tell you those that are listening when you do these things that are stressful, you know, if you're recognizing, like you tell yourself, no, I can't lift one more. Well, lift one more anyway and prove to yourself that you can. Even in daily life, you get in an argument at home, um, you've had enough of it, and you just walk away. And I'm not saying this, there's not times to do that. There is times to just walk away. But come back and, and find a solution for it rather than just letting it sit there and fester and not do anything with it. Work through that problem. And, um, as Jocko Willink, I love his books. I love his podcast. I listened to a couple last night. Um, you know, take ownership in the problem and, and come up with a solution to get you on the other side of that problem. That's really good. I'm just kind of camping out on this first one because it's this is actually a little bit of a, a new addition for for me in this because we we've talked about the guide that's coming out in January, and. Uh, we don't have the three seconds in there. We start with the three minutes. I just want to press you on one more thing. Sure. These, sure. Th these three aspects. Now they're not necessarily bad. Like you could be faced with a situation and maybe your immediate reaction is flight in the right situation. That could be the right response. Now let's just say that you're making the wrong response. How do we go back and correct that when the situation happens? Well, th and this is why I bring it up. Is that and and it's not worthy of going into the guide. It's 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 a difficult concept to discuss. Uh, it's a better one to to have an instructor in front of you or a to friend or, mm -hmm. or a guide to, to train you. Okay, but fair enough. But, yep. But with that said, we've got to discuss it, and it's not something that we could put in the survival guide and 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 it'd be worthwhile. It was it, it didn't need to be there, but. We've got to put it out there so people at least recognize these things. And here's the really difficult concept of this is that somebody should write a book about, and I'm sure there has, The Gift of Fear by Gavin DeBecker is a good one. But um, at any point in time, fight, flight, or freeze is the solution. And at other times, they are a real problem. And what I mean by that is that um, you go to McDonald's, let's say, I don't eat at McDonald's, but let's say you go to McDonald's and you order something, you get the wrong order, and you're immediate response is to grab the person, pull them over the, the uh, counter and beat them to a pulp. Mm -hmm. That's fight. That's not the right solution in that situation. <laughs> right. right? So, however, path. you're walking somewhere dark, some, you know, classic Hollywood bad guy comes up and grabs you that, and they're starting to be aggressive. That is not the time to freeze. That is the time to pull that guy off of his feet and beat him to a pulp. Meaning you've got to defend your life because if you freeze in that moment, then you're going to get beaten or you're going to get injured. And so it's it's one of those subjects that we at least got to throw it out there when we're discussing law of threes 
uh, on a show like this. So people can, can get into, if you have interest in it, then pick up De Becker's book. Just, just get it. It's, it's we'll worth put that in the show notes. Yeah. The gift of fear again is the name of that book, but you, you've got to put some time into understanding and, and at least paying attention to yourself. Uh, and watch people around you. Uh, it's really natural when somebody all of a sudden hears a really loud noise, like a gun goes off or maybe even something falls in the kitchen and a glass breaks. Boom! Everybody will typically shrink their head down and throw their arms up a little bit. That's a very natural response. So fight, flight, and freeze has their own natural responses as well. But the issue is that you need to be able to... Um, understand that they're there and work with them and learn how to to navigate around them particularly for self-defense man we could really go on about this but we're actually going to talk about this somewhere around podcast number eight a bit more and get into preparations and and uh what you can do to better deal with like an active aggressor situation so we'll we'll be back to this particular topic and around this three seconds like what you do when it's go time right now in the future. So let's go ahead and move on to three minutes. What do you have to say about that? Well, three minutes is what I call personal safety, uh, meaning you're not necessarily under direct danger and you have the ability to make some decisions that are going to affect your safety. Uh, a big one is basically how you handle yourself in first aid situations. So right now you can get some good first aid training. I'm a big fan of stop the bleed training as well, which teaches tourniquet use uh, Red Cross now has that out. It's getting ready to be required training in a lot of high schools across the country. Uh, fantastic training. Get into it. Both your basic uh, first aid as well as stop the bleed. Uh, the, the, that's just, that is your personal safety. And you'll utilize that more than you will a firearm, for example, in, in self-defense. I mean, you, mm -hmm. you'll use first sure. aid skills on a regular basis. Another one is some sort of self-defense training, whether it's against predators of the two or forward-legged variety. If you're going into a wilderness area, you need to know what predators might be there that could bring harm to humans and know how to handle yourself with them. For example, bears or mountain lions or something of that nature. You need to know how to handle yourself in those situations. Obviously, you need to be able to have some semblance of self-defense training that uh, can help you defend yourself in an urban or rural environment. It's, it's either one. Another one is basically from the situation of rural or urban, again, not getting lost in the first place. Um, la last night, I wrote two articles for magazines that are getting ready to come out. One of them was called Avoiding Death by GPS. Um, GPSs give us a, a serious problem uh, when they direct us in an area we're not supposed to be in and people have gotten lost and injured and hurt and went into bad areas of big cities and driven out in the middle of Death Valley. I mean, it's it's unfortunate. So. I'm a big fan of maps and paper maps, I mean, to go along with your GPS, to have it as a quality check. And so uh, as far as wilderness travel is concerned, because that's where my wheelhouse is, you need to have that skill set and you need to have those tools, your map and your compass. And uh, that way you have the skills to not get lost in the first place. You don't, you deal with your safety by being proactive rather than being reactive. So I have heard statistically people don't go back and listen to old podcasts, but you guys that are listening are really blowing that out of the water. We're getting a lot of back hits on previous podcasts. And part of that is because we are progressively taking you through from uh, the most important to the least important, and then we're mixing it up in between. But every podcast has some really great stuff in it. And what Craig's talking about here 
we talked about in depth in podcast number one, preparation and crisis prevention. And so I just want to encourage you guys, if you're intrigued in how to keep yourself away from the cliff and uh, keep yourself out of danger to start with, go ahead back and rewind and go and listen to podcast number one. That was a fantastic uh, first podcast. So that, that's all really good. You got anything else here to add in this three minutes time frame? The big one is, and, and I know I talk about this often, but man, it's, it's, it's important. Needed. You got to talk about it. Yeah. It, it's just mindset development. And, and the biggest one is, is controlling your ego. Uh, I wrote, again, I wrote five chapters in a wilderness survival book. My first five chapters in that book is all about controlling your mind and, and ego. Uh, there's a whole chapter dedicated to it for a reason. And the reason is that ego gets people hurt and injured and lost more often than any natural disaster. Uh, so it, it's one of those things. And what I mean by ego is that, uh, yeah, I'll be okay. I don't have to look at the map or I know where I'm going or uh, in a road rage incident, you know, you let your ego get the best of you and then somebody runs you off the road or runs into you or follows you home or any number of things. Uh, just, just be in control of your ego. Uh, it's, there's nothing that's more important than your life to the people that care about you. So take care of your own life, take care of yourself and, and control your ego and it'll get you out of most messes that we're going to run into. That's really good, Craig. So this three minute time frame is basically, if we go back to it and let's maybe go back to the basics of this, um, why, why do we say three minutes here? And I know that there's two particular aspects that we talk about in survival training. We've got blood and airflow. Did you want to talk about those briefly? Yeah. So you can't live more than three minutes without maintaining your blood flow and oxygen flow. But, uh, basically the things that I just described, keep those things in your body and functioning properly. If you go about doing things the wrong way, then that's when you get injured. And when blood leaves the body, it's a problem. Uh, that's where you get uh, your ego, I talked about it. What was it where I talked about almost drowned in the canoe trip ego almost drowned me. You know, I could not breathe. And so you got to be in control of your ego. And that's what we're talking about. You can't live more than three minutes without maintaining your blood flow and oxygen flow. Perfect. So why don't we go ahead and talk about our next one, which is three hours. So generally you can't live for more than three hours without maintaining your core body temperature. So I guess the first level of controlling your core body temperature, shelter. This would go right along with shelter. And what we have as our most immediate shelter are our clothing. So maybe we can discuss that a little bit. And I'm going to throw this back at you, even on the notes it says, David, talk about this. But this is something that you really clarified when I took some of your trainings, Craig, a few years ago. And that's the whole idea of that your body's a furnace or a heater. Do you want to just talk about that for a few seconds, and then I'll get into some clothing. You know, there's so much stuff that's regurgitated in survival, and it should be because it, it, fundamentals are fundamentals, and they should be told over and over again till people understand them. And there's a few things that I've come up with that I just just are real simplistic, and this is one of them. And that is, I try to impress upon everybody that your body is the only heater that you walk around with you. Now, I, I do understand that. In the modern era, you can buy battery-powered jackets and socks and gloves and all that kind of good stuff. But <laughs> I never want to right. be dependent upon anything that requires technology. I, I mm -hmm. want to have solutions for some sort of technological piece of equipment, particularly stuff that runs on batteries, because that is ultimately going to fail. 
So uh, understanding that your body is a heater, we've it, the more we set it up for success, the better off we're going to be as far as a survival late event. It doesn't matter if it's disaster readiness in the middle of Miami, Florida, or if you're in the middle of uh, Utah mountains and you're solo and you're lost. Uh, if you set your body up for success by uh, letting it be the heater that it is, then, then you're going to be much, much better off. So basically the two situations we have here are we have hypothermia is maintaining your, your core body temperature when it's it, the tendency is for it to be drawn down. Right. And then we have what I call, which I'm not even sure if this is a word, but hyperthermia. And that's where you have outside elements that are heating you up to the point where you're getting excessively, your core is getting excessively hot and dangerous. So what we're going to talk about a little bit now is just hypothermia. And as Craig mentioned, your body is a heater. So when you dress properly, it's fairly easy to maintain your core temperature. And basically what we want to talk about here is layering. So let's just say it's cold out. I would normally carry, like right now in Pennsylvania, it's it's dipping down into the teens every night and going up into the 30s during the day. So if you're out at night, you want to have three or four layers on, maybe five, even five layers, uh, socks, base layer. So your base layer would be something like a maybe smart wool or some sort of a nylon thinner layer that, that keeps that initial amount of heat from your body close to your body. Then we've got some insulating layers. Uh, next, I would have some sort of, you know, pants, uh, wool pants are particularly good. Anything with fleece, uh, primal loft, down insulators, and uh, cotton. We've talked about cotton before, Craig. And cotton actually pulls heat away from your body and does not provide, I don't think it provides any insulating value. In fact, it, it is quite the opposite. Would you agree with that? I would. Is It's not that bad if you're not doing anything. But anytime, even if you're laying still, you're going to put off moisture and cotton just soaks it up. Um, you can watch, and I'm sitting here as you were talking, thinking about this, that we just now added these video casts on YouTube as well, which are just uh, our weekly thing. So if you want to see somebody dressed in layers, go watch David's uh, Gear Cave because him and Joe are on that video in layers. <laughs> and watch the one that I did, my latest one, where I'm sitting on the porch of the cabin talking. Um, you'll notice that I have a base layer on that is a wicking long sleeve t-shirt. I have an, uh, um, an over shirt on top of that. And then over top of that, I have a, a fleece vest because that maintains my core. And we need to emphasize that too, David, for sure, is that we need to maintain our core body temperature. Meaning if, if our core from our neck to, you know, basically our hips is warm, then it's going to help supply blood to our our arms and our legs, and then we'll be warmer. Uh, if, if we constrict the blood flow into our legs and our arms, then it makes it more difficult for us to be warm. And so, uh, that, that's something we need to wear looser clothing. It needs to be just, as you said, in layers and it needs to be in the layers that are effective insulators as well. So everybody's, everybody's kind of experienced this. You go out, you have maybe three layers on, you get, you get a little walk on, you go, you know, a quarter of a mile or a half mile or uphill 
and you start to get warm. So we're talking low tech here thermostat. So basically your thermostat then when you're wearing layers is opening up, having clothes on that you can, that have zippers on them so you can maybe open up the front, cool yourself down a little bit, take a layer off, add a layer. That's basically the thermostat to your heater. Would you agree with that, Craig? Yeah, and here's here's a, a, a common misconception is I hear people say all the time, you lose 70% of your body heat out of your head. That is true to a degree. You actually lose 70% of your body heat out through exposed surfaces or out through areas that are exposed to the air. Most often that is your head. And so that's one of the easiest ways for you to regulate body temp. Like, for example, when I hike into my deer stand in Kentucky when it's incredibly cold, this year it was like 13 when I walked in. And when, I, when I'm going to the deer stand, I'm basically going to sit in a deer stand for about 12 hours, okay, just sitting there. Uh, I, I used to, when I was a kid, I'd have about 25 layers on and I was freezing. Now I really wear about two or three. I just wear them real well. And one of the important things that I do is I take my hat off and, I, and when I start walking into my deer stand, uh, uh, my intention is to be cold. I want to be cold because I know I'm going to warm up. That way I don't sweat. So the way to do that is expose any part of your body. So, for example, I'll open up my jacket all the way to my chest, to my bare chest. That lets off some heat. And as soon as I start feeling some sort of chill that I can't control, I just zip up uh, or I put my hat on or both. And that way I'm I'm ready to go. Uh, same thing, you can just roll the sleeves up on your jacket or your shirt whatever you might have on that's going to put that's going to release some heat and in so doing you've released that heat and you don't overheat and start to sweat which is a death sentence in in cold weather so i say this all the time but a lot of people remember from cartoons and old school where you had the the full body long johns where there was a little <laughs> trap door in the butt for them i mean if that's all you had on and you opened up the trap door the heat would escape your butt <laughs> That's right. I mean, it's kind of a funny thing, it, but it, I do say that to help people remember I could have a hat on and opened up that trap door and the heat that needs to leave my body would leave my butt. <laughs> I could, <laughs> I could roll my pants legs up and the, the heat would not be as effective because heat does rise. Uh, mm -hmm. And I, I could lose some heat from my knees down. Or again, I could take my hat off, release some heat. When I start to get that chill, I put that hat back on and, and then we're ready to go. I mean, I went out in 13 degree weather with basically a t-shirt, a super light jacket and a good vest this year and sat there all day long. No hand warmers, nothing. And, and stayed warm just because I had the right clothes on. That's all really good stuff, Craig. And we could, we are going to talk about this at length in the future. So I'm going to, I'm going to move on just with a couple of key points here. Yeah. And yeah. One, one is that, and we've talked about this before, but wool and fleece, they retain a significant amount of, of insulating ability even when they're wet. So if you're in a situation where you may get wet, you're out in the wilderness, it's wintertime, whatever, wool and fleece are a good choice. Actually, wool's a pretty good choice, especially the merino wools and the, the blends and fabrics that they have now. I'm well. I'm wearing more and more wool, even as my socks that I wear in the summertime. I should add in though, just because due to the you know uh, bushcraft communities all about wool, it's good, but it is not as good as Primaloft. You know, when wool gets wet, let's and I think I'm I can't remember if I mentioned this in a podcast 
or somewhere else. But when wool gets wet, it's about 60 to 70% of its efficiency in, in maintaining heat. Promoloft is somewhere around close to 90%. Really? I'm, yeah. not, I'm not actually not familiar with Primaloft. Promoloft is basically what you're going to see in, in, in the better, in the best is pr- what's called Promoloft gold. So if you get a mountain hardware jacket or uh, like I wear a uh, Hill People Serape and, and for Christmas this year, I think I'm pretty sure I'm getting a Patagonia jacket. They all have Primaloft in them. And that is, in my opinion, that's, that's the way to go. Now, the problem is that they're usually in fabrics that don't hold up real well to abuse. That's the only problem. So for somebody like me in Kentucky, where I'm literally out in the bush, wool is a great choice because I can go through the woods and it doesn't tear easily. Whereas a nice Patagonia jacket's nice for the millennial that's going to be walking around campus in it. But I'm going to have to have something over top of that so it doesn't get easily torn. Gotcha. So uh, that's something to keep in mind. But it is, without a doubt, a better insulator. And down. I don't want to forget down. Two years ago, my wife got me a a down vest, and I I just wasn't down on down. And I started wearing that thing. And I'll tell you what, that is amazing. You know, again, the issue is it it loses its insulating value if it gets wet, but it has a, it has a nylon shell on the outside and then I can wear it underneath another uh, jacket. That's more weather Absolutely. resistant. I have a wool jacket and, and it's a great combination. You've got to do that. You've got to do that. And, and don't fall victim. When I wrote uh, ultimate wilderness gear, my second book, I did a lot of research on this new waterproof down and it just, it, uh, I, I contacted a bunch of uh, mountaineers like three or four of them. I can't even remember who they are now because that was two years ago. But, but I was like, tell me, is this, is this down doing what it's marketed to be? Because that's what that book's about is proving the marketing right or wrong on stuff. And they were like, no, it's not. They, 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 I mean, down is king, right? As far as warmth, but when, as soon as it gets moisture, it's a problem. And the waterproof down where they're trying to compete with stuff such as Primalaw, it just doesn't, it doesn't match up to the marketing hype that it's given. Uh, and, and, and they'll, they'll show lab results. Cause I contacted one company and they did send me some lab results and that's fine in the lab, but for Craig Cottle, uh, Woods Ninja, I, I can't, I, I don't, <laughs> I don't exist in a lab, right? I exist right, in the room. Yeah. I mean, I'm looking out the window right now and it's pouring the rain and I'm going to be out in it for uh, most of the night. So I've got to have equipment that works out there, not in the lab. So, man, we have really, we have really covered at least colder weather clothing here. Let's just talk really, really quick about shelter. And we're probably in, in the next six months, we're probably going to do three or four or five shows about shelter. And we actually have one coming up uh, really, really soon on shelters with Ron from Atlas Survival Shelters. So we're here at three hours. And again, We've got three seconds, three minutes, three hours, three days, three weeks, and these are all general guidelines. It is possible that you could become hypothermic in minutes, not hours. So just know that this is a general guideline. If you start to shiver or you start to excessively sweat and overheat and and feel faint or lightheaded, you need to do something now with your with your temperature, with your shelter. And of course, shelter is a, a something that we need to think about. If it starts to rain, if you have an umbrella, that's the shelter for you. If you have a poncho, that's the shelter from the rain. If you can get under some evergreen trees, that can provide s- some shelter. If you have a tent, 
shelter there. Uh, you're out in the cold, your car breaks down, stay with your car. We've talked about this before. Those are all shelters. If you get really cold and you're close to a, a dwelling that has a fire going on the inside, go and bang on the door and ask them if you can come in and get warm. Those are all shelters. And I have heard this and it seems it seems like I've been able to confirm it, although maybe you can do a Mythbuster thing here. The number one killer in outdoor situations is hypothermia. Is that true, Craig? Have you done any research? That on is that? true. Okay. Uh, that comes from the Wilderness Medical Society. Uh, that is absolutely true. That is the number one killer in the backcountry. So that's why um, we spend so much time on it, guys. I know we've talked about this a lot, but we need to. Because here's the thing. If we talk about this and you listen and you implement what we're suggesting you do, then we're going to save lives. You're going to save lives. So tell everybody you know. Uh, what you've heard here today, share it with your family. And that way, you know, we're taking care of each other. And we actually get to spend more time outside doing the things that we do or being more prepared for that next natural disaster, whether it's a hurricane or a tornado or whatever comes our way. That's really good, Craig. And again, we're going to cover this in future podcasts. But the bottom line here, I guess the two takeaways are if you dress appropriately to start with, if you've done what we've said so many times, check the weather, um, you're going to have a much more enjoyable and a longer time out in the wilderness, even out in urban areas, dress appropriately. I, I know we all want to look cool. Um, there's just some times where smooth bottom shoes are not appropriate if you want to be outside, whether you're in the city or, or out in the woods. So dress, number one, pay attention, learn how to dress appropriately. Both Craig and I on our YouTube channels have talked about this and done videos on this specific issue. Go check those out, and we'll be back to this topic and then uh, Craig, you want to take us and then shelter. Obviously, seek shelter. If your clothing's not appropriate, uh, something just went wrong or the, you know, you weren't planning on something environmentally happening where you need to seek shelter, uh, know how to build a shelter. We've talked about trash bags being a perfect kind of emergency shelter, uh, easy to carry, everyday carry, and all that sort of stuff. So, okay, Craig, so we've talked about these things. Is there anything else you want to add Real quick here about shelter itself. Yeah, just keep in mind, everybody, that shelter, whether it's clothing or the garbage bag and, and, and tarps or staying with your car, as David's mentioned, is all about core body temperature maintenance. That, again, listen to this word maintenance. It's, it's maintaining that heater that you carry around with you all the time. We can get heat from our environment, and that comes in the form of fire. And when we teach fire building, one of the things we we always try to impress upon people is the idea that you need three things to make a fire. You need a fuel source, you need an ignition source, and you need oxygen. And if for some reason you're trying to make heat, you're trying to build heat, and you can't, you're having difficulty, just look at the science of it. Look at those three things. One of those three things is is not working. And then you'll have the ability to to dissect that problem and fix it. So this, this comes in different ways. You know, I'm a big fan of, you know, and again, I'm a woods ninja, but I'm just telling you, I, I carry hand warmers with me in my vehicle and all my vehicles. Uh, if for some reason we're broke down, we need to stay in the vehicle, throw some hand warmers in those uh, important areas of the body, like under your armpits, near your groin, so that, and, and on your kidney, so it helps uh, keep your body warm. Um, you don't want to use fossil fuels in an enclosed area. Uh, my, my, Actually, my daughter ran into this problem this week. She's an aquatics director in a pool, and she uh, she thought there were some possibly some things that weren't functioning probably with the thing that heats her pool for our city, 
And she was right. I mean, it was putting off carbon monoxide because it wasn't functioning properly. And carbon monoxide is a killer. So you need to not use fossil fuels in an enclosed surface. I had a student come in last year that wanted to use his heater in a tent. And I'm like, you can't. I mean, we got in a serious disagreement about it. And um, I don't care. I mean, <laughs> I'm not interested in this dude dying in my class. So uh, you can't do that sort of thing. And, and it's, the reason I bring this up is because when you make a fire, you have some sort of heat source, then it puts off radiant heat. And you can then utilize that to, to warm your body up. Uh, and although I am a bushcrafter and I do know make hand drill fires and bow drill fires, those are all, and more than anything, it's just maintaining old skills, which I like. But you shouldn't be dependent upon a bow drill. You should carry a lighter with you. Uh, I tell people in my neck of the woods here, if Daniel Boone could have carried a lighter, by golly, he would have carried two. Uh, he he would have had one. And, and we need to have that mindset. It's survival. Again, we we can get into the hobby of it, and people are like, I got this and I got that. And it's it's survive. true survival is about you doing what you need to do, even if that means, quote, unquote, cheating. <laughs> carry a lighter. Carry two of them. And and so that you make a fire like in my vehicle i carry road flares if i have to have a fire by golly i'm gonna hit one of those road flares and i'm gonna make a fire uh, it's gonna happen so um just fires are very important to helping you get some heat from your environment because maybe you're losing it and you're having difficulty maintaining it all right david so here's the deal I i'm looking at our timing mm -hmm. And, uh, I know I have a problem talking too much, but I, I'm seriously uh, listening to you and I'm, and I'm actually paying attention to what we've put in our notes to make sure we're, we're, uh, orderly and what we're sharing with people. I don't think we've shared anything that doesn't need to be shared. I think it's all been this important. Is essential stuff. It man. is. It's incredibly yeah. essential. And because core body temperature maintenance is one of the primary things you've got to take care of, um, it, it's needed. We need to focus a lot of attention on it. But with that said, we're running kind of long so why don't we do this if it's all right with you let's let's break off three days three weeks and three months which is water food and and human assistance into another show in and of itself and let's go ahead and dig into the rest of our segments for today how's that sound to you okay that sounds really good craig so why don't we go ahead and get into our break it down segment so guys in this segment what we do is we break down a real life story and i just want to emphasize that we are not being critical of the people that either found themselves or, or maybe even facilitated getting themselves in these situations. We are just here to learn from their stories. And we all know everybody loves a story. And stories help us to remember things. So that's why we have this segment incorporated. But our whole purpose here is to dissect these real-life stories and draw out some life lessons for ourselves through them. So why don't we go ahead and take a look at today's story and break it down. All right, guys, this story came out of some training that I did with uh, federal first responders that had responded. I'm, I'm not certain, but I think it was Houston, Texas last year. And I'm going to set the stage for you. I'm not going to, uh, I'm not reading this story from a news uh news article I'm, I'm relating this story as the way it was told to me imagine that you are in houston where everything's flooded there are dead cattle dead dogs dead cats floating everywhere and uh, in your neighborhood you recognize that there are some people that are left in their home and you want to go help them now 
in this situation, federal first responders went in to take care of this situation. We could also be thrust into this situation ourselves if there is not the time for federal first response to get there. What happened was the folks that I was training responded to a call of distress at a home. Somebody needed to get out. They were in two John boats. If you don't know what John boats are, like flat bottom boats. I don't know if most of the country is familiar with John boats or not, but mm-hmm. but they were two flat bottom boats, had motors on them, and they had no idea. These are these are armed federal officers because there's a lot of people that take advantage of others in situations. So they go in there with all their kit on, meaning they got all their IFAC, they got their chest plates, they've got rifles and all this stuff that unfortunately they need to defend themselves and they have had to defend themselves. But when they get to this house, there is an incredibly obese woman there that is getting, is basically, I mean, this is a morbidly obese woman. We're not, again, we're not being critical of her, but the situation is that she is sitting in water and it's slowly, but surely coming up on her and she's going to drown. Okay. So here's a situation I throw out to you all. What do you do in that situation? The question uh, would require you to start processing that and coming up with a solution. Some people, because uh, I've presented this to other people, would say, well, she put herself there. I just let her drown. Well, I'm sorry. I'm just not that. I have more humanity <laughs> within myself. Even if I'm not a federal first responder, I'm going to do what I can to help somebody in that situation. Um, and again, we've talked about this before, but my primary responsibility is to take care of my family. But I'm going to do what I can to help others in a situation where I can. So how would you process that? Um, I'm not saying you have to come up with a plan. I'm just saying here's what you need to do. You need to think about really out-of-the-ordinary situations like that now. Process them in your mind and determine how you'll handle yourself. And here's why. If you start developing a system as we mentioned earlier in the podcast when we were discussing three seconds in decision-making, then you are, again, building those neural pathways and thought processes to help you solve problems. That's why I'm a big fan of doing crossword puzzles and Sudoku and and uh, creative uh, mind games. Those sorts of things are ways that you can continue to build your creative mindset that will assist you when you're in the middle of a disaster. And so anything that you do along those lines is going to be helpful to you, even if you're thrust in a situation where now you've got two John boats and you've got a morbidly obese woman, I'm talking 400 plus pounds, and you've got to figure out a way to get her out of there. They literally had to rip the door off the hinges, cut a hole in the wall with a chainsaw to get her out out of the house. They had to uh, tie the boats together to put her in a position where she could float on both boats and get her out of there. And they did, they got her out of there. They saved her life. And, and it was, a, it was a good day. It was a very difficult day and it took a long time for them to do what I just described in 15 seconds. But the thing that helped them was learning how to creatively think. And you can do that in special forces selection. You can do that in buds. You can do that sitting on your couch, uh, doing crossword puzzles, but more often than not, you need to get out and, and, do problem solving. Um, that's why I am a big fan of bushcrafting. Bushcrafting is a way that you go out and you build tools. Uh, you, you build a windlass, you build traps and stuff of that nature, and you have to work with materials and it basically helps you problem solve and problem solving is a fantastic skill set to have. What comes to mind with this story with you, David? Yeah. You just, in that last comment, bushcrafting and, and I'll call it 
MacGyvering. I think Matt Graham mentioned that in our previous podcast. And you don't have to necessarily even get out in the bush. If you have situations around your around your home, your apartment, wherever you live, and there's you, you don't have the right tools, like you would have to go to the hardware store or spend, you know, fifty or seventy five dollars to solve a solution or get your door to close right or whatever. Exactly. You can MacGyver it. I, I've got half of my home MacGyvered <laughs> from scrap materials and uh, you know, upcycled things. It's just it's just what we do around here. And that's another fantastic way. Now I want to encourage you to get out, but MacGyvering is really cool too. And if you don't know what MacGyvering is, then you're not as old as Craig and I. <laughs> hey, and then, and then you, the way you said that brings up an interesting topic because uh, a lot of people have heard us on the podcast and in my first solo podcast where I talked about uh, the root ball about two days after. Yeah, right. about two days after yeah. I, I made that video, I went out and made another video that's on my YouTube channel where I pulled that root ball down and put it back to basically do some habitat improvement with it. And and that's what that video, that's exactly what that video was about, was I went out and did some problem solving on how in the world am I going to get that root ball back to where it needs to be. I didn't have to do it, but I just took an opportunity. It took me about an hour to figure it all out with straps and chains and pulleys and trees and all sorts of things. But it was just a way of doing creative problem solving, you know. Nice, and so nice. uh, I did that video for the purpose of just encouraging people to do like you're talking about around the house, do like I did out in the middle of the woods or do it at the, you know, at a manufacturing facility where you work, come up with better solutions and, and creatively problem solve. So, oh, you know what? We kind of messed up the sequence of what we were talking about because next up is water. So next time we're going to come in and you can only go about three days without water. And so this was patterned after that. So I'm going to do it anyway. Thumbs up, thumbs down, Craig. So there's this big controversy out there. And here's the topic. <laughs> Is it okay to drink your pee? Thumbs up or thumbs down? And thumbs why? Down. Thumbs down. Boy, I hesitated there, didn't I? No, I didn't at all. Okay, your your urine is toxins leaving the body. And and so number one, you're putting toxins back into your body. That's that's the first problem. Secondly, because you're putting toxins in your body, you're in essence forcing your body to work harder to clean that urine to utilize it in your body. And so it basically your body has to work double time, which means it's going to increase your temperature. It is going to burn more energy. It means you're going to burn more water. And so basically there's a, a negligible at best effect of drinking your own urine. And so water coolers, you know what water coolers are, right? Drinking your own urine was designed for people to talk about survival training around the water cooler and survival TV shows. You know, that's why some of these guys do it on a regular basis because they, you know, because me and you are now talking about it. And 10 years ago, we wouldn't have because it's stupid, in my opinion. There have been people, and I can't deny this, there have been people that have survived drinking their own urine, but those people were in a situation where they were trapped. They couldn't move. They weren't burning hardly any energy at all. 
there was one story that came out of Haiti where a woman purposely cut herself and had her child. Uh, when I say in Haiti, they were in the earthquake and they were covered up and couldn't move. They were stuck for like a month. This woman purposely cut herself and had her child drink her own blood for the purpose of giving her child nourishment from her blood. I mean, yes, that'll work drinking. And she drank her own urine and had her own child drink her urine and, and stuff of that nature. Uh, it will, but that's a situation where somebody is sitting there basically doing nothing. And so even if their body is working overtime, they're not doing anything else. Uh, it's just, in my opinion, it's a big thumbs down. What about you? Well, I have to agree with you on this one, Craig. We cannot find one that we disagree on, but we will. We will eventually find one we disagree on. But yeah, but really, guys, when by the time you're desperate enough to drink your own pee, the toxin and saline levels, saline's really important salt levels, in your urine are going to likely be dangerously high. Now, I, I mean, we're talking about kind of gross stuff here, but everybody pees, right? So when you're severely dehydrated, what's going to happen is your pee is going to darken up and it's actually going to get thicker. Uh, in most cases, if you're in a situation and uh, you're, you're that desperate, you're probably already well dehydrated and... This is going to be a down, I think, Craig, what you're talking about is it's a downward spiral, not to mention the fact that your body might reject it anyway. And if you, if you vomit, you're just, you're just increasing the speed of that downward spiral as far as dehydration goes. Yeah, I agree. It's definitely a, uh, it's just, you're just continuing to put more toxins and they build upon, I mean, every time you urinate, you're getting rid of toxins. So if you drink in urine, then you just doubled up the toxins. I mean, it's, it just, it's not good. It's not good at all. Yeah. Plus it's just gross. Yeah. It, there is the gross factor. So that is our thumbs up and thumbs Two down. Two thumbs segment. down again, man. We got to find something we disagree yeah, with. I'll, all right. I'm coming up with one the next time that I'm pretty sure we'll disagree on <laughs> or try right. to. So your challenge is to come up with a thumbs up, thumbs down that we disagree <laughs> yeah. on. So why don't we get into the mailbag? Okay, guys, this question is from P, and she asks, based off of some of your comments in a prior thumbs up, thumbs down segment, where Craig mentioned that there's nothing you can do but get to the hospital if you get bit by a snake, her question is this, snakes are everywhere. So I wanted to dig a little deeper and ascertain if there is anything you can do to slow the spread of venom even if you can't get rid of it? Yeah, I think that's a really good question. And and Craig, I think even specifically, part of what they're asking is too about tourniquets. Yeah, I want to cover this in twofold. Is that okay? Here's how you spread the venom. First, you don't get bit in the first place. That seems silly, but it's not. Up until around 1984, 85, um, the vast majority, somewhere around 85% of venomous snake bites were on the, some, somewhere on the human body from the knee down to the foot. After that mid eighties time range, they started drastically occurring from about the elbow down to the wrist. Who has a guess why? I could tell you why it's because of Steve Irwin going around picking up snakes and popularizing the fact that people pick up snakes. This is one more time. Not to, I'm not going to denigrate him. Uh, I know he had a tragic death, but we must let wildlife be wildlife and not mess with it. 
Mm-hmm. If you see a venomous mm-hmm. snake and you want to play all Steve Irwin, then you're going to get bit at some point in time. Uh, you just, just avoid them. One thing that I tell people to do is, uh, I always keep a monocular in my gear just for the sake of looking at wildlife. And sometimes I use it for nature study, looking up in the top of trees at wildlife nests and, and fruit and stuff of that nature. But I also use it to check out snakes. Like if I see a snake and I want to check him out, cause Hey, I'm, 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 I'm a wildlife freak. I love looking at wildlife. I will use my monocular to check that snake out instead of utilizing my ego again here's where ego gets people in trouble to go over there pick this thing up mess around with it try to look like some cool dude when i'm really not cool um the best thing to do is just observe it from a distance that's number one that's how you avoid spreading the venom okay and i like throwing those statistics because basically those statistics in about a five-year time span completely flip-flopped and it's all because of tv okay number two getting into the tourniquets. No, that's the last thing you need to do because here's what happens when, when snake venom gets in your body and I can't remember the medical terms for it, but one of them, it's going to get into muscular tissue. The other one is going to get into blood. There's real fancy words for it. I can't remember what they are. I'm a Kentuckian. Forgive me. But when that happens, uh, it is actually best to allow the venom to spread out throughout the body. If you put a tourniquet, let's say I get bit on the hand for some reason. I, I, I'm looking, I'm picking up mushrooms or acorns or something, and I reach down under a log and I get bit by a copperhead. And I get bit right on the wrist. If I put a tourniquet on right at my elbow to stop that from going in my rest of my body, then all the venom is going to concentrate on that part of my body, and there is a really good chance that I could cause extensive damage. Whereas if I left it to circulate through the body, then I would be, it's still going to hurt, but it's going to spread out and not cause as much problem. Now I'm no medical provider. I'm not saying I'm a professional on this. Okay. What I did do is I interviewed a snake venom expert. You can go to my YouTube channel, look up a snake bite expert. And I interviewed Jim Harrison who literally milks venomous snakes all day long, like two to 300 snakes a day. He takes the venom out of them. And he's been envenomated several times and he is one of the literal, I mean, he lives really close to me, but he is literally one of the world's, not the, not Kentucky's, but one of the world's leading researchers into snake venom. And what I just told everybody is what he told me to tell everybody. Some people have suggested that you can put ice on it to slow it down. Same thing. Some people have suggested to clean the bite area. That's probably not a bad idea because basically what you're doing at that point is you're treating the area uh, to help prevent infection. That's about the only thing you can do in the field. Uh, try to relax so that that uh, you get out and, and it, your heart's not pumping faster because the snake venom can cause problems with that. Try to stay calm and just get to the hospital. That's That's your solution. The fortunate thing is that... Uh, despite the concern that we have over snake bites uh, and being envenomated by a snake, more often than not, they're very survivable uh, injuries here in the States. Now, there's some parts of the world where, nope, you're not going to make it. And you might as well sit down and say your prayers and and say goodbye because you're going to die. But here in the States, where most of our listeners are coming from, um, you know, you're snake bites are, are a, a livable problem. I mean, you're, you're going to make it through more often unless you are already have some underlying health concern. So one thing I've heard is, is keeping the bite area 
lower than the heart? Is that Yeah, accurate? and basically what you're doing there is you're just you're trying not to accelerate the venom going into the heart. That's not a bad idea. Again, basically what you want it to do is you want it to go through the body, spread out so that it's not concentrated on any one portion of the body. So if if you're doing it otherwise and you're forcing more blood in your arm, for example, to go down into your heart, then it, there's a chance that there's more concentrated venom going into the heart and that could be problematic. I, I just want to be real clear. I'm not a healthcare provider. I'm not a snake venom expert. That's why I interviewed him. I really highly recommend, and I'll find that link and make sure it gets put in the show notes because y'all need to uh, y'all need to watch this video because this guy's literally the world, one of the world's best. So, since we talked about clothes earlier, are there any clothing options like cowboy boots, gaiters, anything like that that yeah. you think would be helpful for people that travel in areas that have a lot of venomous snakes? You know, gaiters are real good. Uh, we have a search and rescue, some search and rescue members here in our area of operations here. I'm not on the on that team, but uh, there's one ridge in the Red River Gorge where they'll see 20 or 30 sn- snakes in a night. And so a lot of those folks will wear gaiters uh, when they're going through those areas, because they know that there's just a higher, I mean, they, there isn't no guess when they go in at night, because snakes are really, they really come out at night. It's not a guess on whether they're going to see them. They know they're going to see them. And so, yeah, they do wear gaiters and that helps for sure. Anything else as far as clothing? How about higher boots? Yeah. I mean, just keep in mind that, you know, snakes can get through nylon. Like if, let's say you're wearing a, a shoe that's got nylon sides on it they're going to be able to go right through that a good thick leather is going to be a much better choice but again um it would it it would more often than not they're going to hit you if they catch you by surprise i'm not saying you're sticking your arm down in the in a log they're going to hit you from the ankle to the knee that's just how it works Mm -hmm. and so those gators are going to be your best choice more than anything so a couple takeaways from here one is avoidance and what i've noticed craig is that snakes will avoid you so I think some situational awareness, just knowing what's coming up ahead, uh, like you said, avoid the snakes. And the other two places that I've seen and dealt with a lot of snakes are if you're going to reach your hand into a brush or a wood pile, that's possible, especially rock piles. If you're somewhere where it's very rocky and maybe you're gathering some resources for a fire pit, building a fire ring, and you're turning over rocks and it's just the right day you could be surprised by a snake in that rock pile. Anything else to add to that, Craig? No, man. uh, Again, uh, you're right on the money here and here in our part of the world, we deal with copperheads and wood piles all the time. Uh, And again, if everybody realizes that they're more scared of you than, or as scared of you and want to get away from you, uh, because the only reason they're going to envenomate you is because they've been surprised or they think you're some sort of food source and they're not dumb. They don't strike you because they think you're some sort of food source. They strike you because you've surprised them and alarmed them. So, uh, which brings up another topic. More often than not, uh, they're, they're going to do what's called a dry bite. So just because you get bit by a snake does not mean it's a death sentence or you're going to lose your arm or leg or whatever. Uh, it's, again, go to the hospital because there's a good chance it's a dry bite, which means they bite, they they stick their fangs in you, but Maybe you surprise them so quickly they did not have the venom inside the uh, fangs itself, and so there was no venom that was transferred over to you. All right, guys, thank you for joining us today for what we've covered so far. We've looked at three seconds. We've looked at three minutes, 
and we've looked at three hours, but we need to desperately be able to cover three days, three weeks, and three months as well. So we're, we're interested in the efficiency of your time. We thank you for you joining us. So what we're going to do is we're going to break it off now and come back later and do part a part two where we cover the rest of the law of threes. So don't forget to subscribe to the channel. We really appreciate that. Subscribing to the podcast wherever you listen to us is, is very beneficial. And especially because we're so good looking and happy and all that good stuff. We'd really appreciate if you give us a five-star rating because, you know, <laughs> We deserve it, please. So thank you for that. And in all seriousness, guys, y'all have been so incredibly encouraging with all the uh, reviews and all the five stars and all that good stuff. And it, it really, it not only encourages us, but it helps the show continue to be successful. And, and we simply just couldn't do it without you. So click on the link in the description below that you're going to have all the show notes, including Gavin DeBecker's book, The Gift of Fear as well as that video I just mentioned on snake bites, um, which is a really good topic. So check all that out. Check out the gear list that David and Ben are going to put together because everything we've talked about is going to have a link for you. And I think that's it, everybody. So thank you so much. We'll see you next time, and we'll be covering part two. And then after that, we're going to be doing some active shooter stuff, lots of stuff to come. Keep it simple, be positive, and stay sharp.